The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Let's pray together. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, we have sung daring petitions to you. We have made great requests of you that you would give us these things by the gift of your Holy Spirit, that you would give us truth, that you would give us grace, that you would give us might, that you would give us purity, all things that we do not have in and of ourselves but which your spirit has in all of his fullness and abundance. We confess how much we need the presence of your spirit with us, in us, uh, working in and through us. And uh, Father, we would ask that you would make that a focus of our constant prayer to you as we bring other needs before you that we would not forget this great need that we have for the spirit of the Lord Jesus who gave himself for us to indwell us and to empower us and make us ever more mindful of the grace that you have shown to us in Christ and uh, ever more committed to the calling and the privilege that is ours because we have been seized by grace through your sovereign spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. continue our meditations in the first chapter of the book of Acts. Our focus will be on verses 12 through 14 today, but again, to give us some context, let me begin to read at verse 4 and read through verse 14. While staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. 
This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts this morning. Whenever I read verse 14, I think of uh, an article that appeared in 1972. I don't remember many things from 1972. Some of you don't remember anything from 72. But I do remember this article that appeared in Christianity Today. I did have to look that up in December of that year. I remember it because it was by one of my professors, Harvey Kahn, some years now, Dr. Khan has been with the Lord, but uh, he had just returned that year from Korea after many years of ministry in Korea, uh, a ministry that ranged from sharing the gospel with prostitutes on the streets of Seoul to training candidates for the ministry in one of the premier reformed seminaries of Korea. And he'd come back, uh, and all the buzz was Harvey Khan is coming back to teach at Westminster. And I had had him for a course already at that point when this article appeared. The the title of the article was Luke's Theology of Prayer. And I reread it again. I was surprised that it doesn't talk as much about this verse as I remembered it doing. Uh, But uh, in that article, Harvey, I I think of him as Harvey. He was my professor, but uh, Harvey talks about the prominence of prayer, especially in Luke-Acts, Luke's theology of prayer. He says, for example, Luke speaks of nine prayers of Jesus, seven of which, this is in the gospel, seven of which are mentioned only by him and not by the other gospel writers. Luke alone tells us that Jesus was praying when the heavens opened at his baptism. Luke alone tells us that Jesus was praying alone in Caesarea Philippi and asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am. Luke alone tells us that Jesus took Peter and James and John up to the mount to pray when he was transfigured. Luke alone records the request of Jesus' disciples, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Luke alone tells us the prayer parables of the friend at midnight asking for bread, the shameless widow begging the judge. Luke alone notes Jesus' prayer for Peter that Satan would not sift him and Jesus' exhortation to his disciples to pray on their arrival at Gethsemane. Distinctive emphasis in that third gospel given to us through Luke, the companion and friend of Paul. Luke also, of course, gives prayer a very prominent place in the book of Acts, as we see in this text, the beginning of a a pattern that you see throughout the book of Acts, Uh, In the very next passage, which we'll look at in a few weeks, the church goes to prayer to ask Jesus to indicate whom he has chosen to be the replacement for Judas, the traitor, a new apostolic witness to the resurrection to complete the number of the twelve. Luke will record that in the aftermath of the ingathering of the nations in preliminary form on the day of Pentecost through Peter's preaching in the power of the outpoured spirit, the church will devote itself to prayer. Luke will record in Acts 4 when official opposition begins that the church will respond immediately by turning to their Lord in prayer. In Acts 6, when ministers of mercy are needed to care for the widows, the church will go to prayer to set them apart by the laying on of the apostles' hand. And so it, and so it goes prominent in Luke. But Professor Kahn's article 
not only highlighted that Luke focuses on prayer, he also asked the further question, why? He showed the theological context and the significance of that prayer focus. He showed that prayer is all bound up with, good theological term, eschatology. It's all bound up with God's agenda for the ages. It's all bound up with the coming of God's kingdom, the invasion of the Lord's redemptive reign to reconquer the nations that are rightfully his by the power of his grace working in the gospel. Harvey pointed out that too often in our own thinking we tend to separate our prayer life from God's big global agenda. Actually, the way he put it was this. The evangelical long ago confined prayer to that neat little compartment of housekeeping projects known as the devotional life. The schizophrenic bungalow around the back of what Daniel Poling has spoken of as, quote, the biggest buildings and ground construction and shrub trimming period in Christian history. Ouch. Is that what we're about? Building buildings, trimming shrubs, tending to our little needs. How can our prayers break out of that devotional bungalow around the back and get connected to God's global, epical kingdom? agenda, that kingdom inaugurated in the first coming of Jesus the Messiah in his obedience and his sacrificial death in his mighty resurrection and enthronement as we saw several weeks ago and now soon for these apostles, his celebration of his coronation in the outpouring of the spirit, that, that inauguration of the kingdom and now the kingdom advancing in our time in the power of the Spirit and the, and the kingdom to be consummated at the return of Jesus as the angels in white promised the apostles. How can we get connected to that? One step is to ask ourselves the question, what were these folks praying for? These 11, you notice 11 names there, not 12. That's to prepare us for three weeks from now when we look at the replacement for Judas. 11 apostles plus the women plus Mary, Jesus' brothers, presumably even more people, because in the next verse, in verse 15, Luke is going to mention 120 gathered in expectation and waiting for the coming of the Spirit. What were they praying for? Well, we're not told, are we? Or, or are we? Well, actually, maybe we are. And I would suggest that when we read this text, in the context of Jesus' teaching on prayer in Luke 11, we get a pretty good idea of what they must have been praying for. You remember in Luke 11, this is the passage where the disciples do ask Jesus, as he's praying, teach us to pray. John taught his disciples as the forerunner a particular type of prayer, a particular prayer of anticipation. We don't know what it was, but apparently the disciples of Jesus did. We know that the rabbis of the period taught their disciples distinctive prayers that sort of encapsulated their understanding of what it meant to follow the God of Israel. Teach us, Jesus. You, we know you're the one who's come to bring the kingdom in. Teach us a prayer that fits our time and place and who you are. And Jesus teaches them, as you know, the Lord's Prayer. And right up front, what is it? Our Father. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Jesus says, here's something distinctive for you. Pray for the coming 
of the kingdom of God. Was that on the mind of these disciples now, these three plus years later or two plus years later, whatever it was? Well, obviously it was because we've read in Acts 1 that Jesus had spent the 40 days telling them about the kingdom of God. And we heard still on their lips that question, is now the time for the kingdom to come for Israel? They hadn't quite gotten the dimensions of the kingdom and the power by which it would expand through the Spirit's preaching through the apostolic witness, but they, they got the kingdom idea. Surely they must have been praying for the coming of the kingdom. And what's interesting is that in Luke 11 also, after Jesus gave them the Lord's Prayer, he went on to give analogies. He urged them to pray with confidence. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be open to you. Ask, you will receive. After all, even though your wicked fathers... Still, you don't give your children scorpions when they ask for bread or a stone when they ask for a fish. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You may have thought good things, but then you're thinking of what Matthew records for us in the Sermon on the Mount. How much more will your father give good things? That's the way Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. But here in this special teaching to his disciples on prayer, he makes it more specific. The father does give all kinds of good gifts to his children. But here Jesus focuses in Luke 11 on the very best. The father will give the spirit. Is that promise on their mind? Oh, you bet. (laughs) You bet, right? Jesus has said twice in the verses just before this text, You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. They're praying for the coming of the Spirit to bring the power for the advance of the kingdom. And you put those clues along three other factors, alongside three other factors, and it's, it's, I think, pretty convincing. They're praying for the coming of the kingdom in the power of the Spirit. Think about this parallel. In Luke 3, we read about Jesus praying as the Spirit comes upon him while he's being baptized by John and the Father declaring him to be my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Language that comes in part out of Psalm 2. Jesus declared by the Father to be the Messianic Son, now anointed by the Spirit for his royal agenda. Put that alongside What we will come to, if I continue Acts next year, we won't get to Acts 2 till next year. (laughs) Sorry about that, we'll go slow. But remember what comes in Acts 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to equip the church, and what do we hear in Peter's preaching? Jesus acclaimed as the Messianic King. This Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, in the power of the Spirit, the Spirit comes, Jesus is proclaimed as the Messianic King. And put that alongside one more piece of evidence when we get to chapter 4 of Acts, who knows when that would be. The church, in response to the threats of the Sanhedrin, turns to the Lord in prayer, and they beg the Lord not to keep them safe from persecution, but to give them boldness to continue to speak the word, for Jesus is the great anointed one. And they quote back to the Lord, Psalm 2, 
Lord, you fulfilled Psalm 2. The nations and the kings and the peoples have conspired against your Messiah. But give us boldness to speak your word. And in response, now this side of Pentecost, that watershed, redemptive, historical landmark, still this side of Pentecost, the response of the Lord to their prayer is he pours out the Spirit in a new abundance to empower them to bear witness. So there's the pattern, isn't it? There's the pattern. I think that's the clue as to what they're praying for preeminently. They're praying for the coming of the kingdom in the power of the Spirit to enable them to fulfill the mission to be witnesses in the world. Jesus promises to send the Spirit from his heavenly throne, to launch the expansion of God's kingdom to the ends of the earth through the witness that is born to his great redemptive work. In response to Jesus' promise, his people are waiting in intense, expectant, focused, persistent, unified prayer. All those things are really built into the two words that Luke uses there, with one accord and devoted themselves. It's all of that. It's intense, it's committed, it's unified, all with one accord. They pray. And notice it's not just the apostles. It's the apostles along with other members of the church. Women, no doubt those who had assisted Jesus' group on their travels, no doubt the women who intended to care for Jesus' body when they were surprised to find the tomb empty uh, on resurrection morning. Mary, and now Jesus' brothers who had been unbelievers during Jesus' earthly ministry, but now they're gathered with the church. And no doubt, as I said, others, since 120 are mentioned in the next verse. The church is gathered in expectant, focused, intense, persistent, unified prayer for the transforming presence of the Spirit of God. And in answer to our prayers, which are in response to his promise, Christ the King is going to answer those kingdom-centered petitions by pouring out his Spirit in just a few days on the day of Pentecost. The gospel will go out to those who need to hear its life-giving message. What do you pray for? What do you pray for? What's your prayer life like? If it's anything like mine, it's a lot about the daily concerns of life, and that's not wrong. The Bible tells us that our Father cares for us. We can cast our care upon him because he cares for us. We can bring concerns large and small to him, but we must not stop there. We must not stop there. We need to pray that he will use us in powerful ways, in ways way beyond our own strength for the advance of his kingdom in the world, which means we need to pray for the renewed and deepening power and presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who gives grace, the Spirit who conveys truth, the Spirit who makes us holy. By all means, bring all the, all the daily needs to your Father. He cares, but don't stop there. Pray big prayers that embrace his kingdom enterprise around the globe and ask for his spirit's presence and power to equip you, not only eventually someday, but even today, to equip, empower, enable you to be his faithful witnesses in the world. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you, thankful that in keeping with your promise, on that great day of Pentecost, 
that was still for these gathered believers a few days in the future, but is now for us something already accomplished. That day when you baptized your church in the power and the purity of your spirit, that now the spirit continues his work among us. And Father, we know we need his work to continue in each of us and in our congregations, and yes, in our community here at Westminster Seminary, California. Transform us. Give us a hunger to know you more. Give us a longing to be useful in the great global expansion of the kingdom of your beloved Son, Jesus the Messiah, our Savior, through the gospel of your grace. We pray in his name. Copyright 2012, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.